0: Hello and welcome back to part two of my Steve Katz episode 75 of the Camp Ojibla History podcast. Today's show, two separate pieces. Uh, first, we're going to hear from one of Steve's daughters and uh, her experiences both at camp and her own camp experiences at one of the our nearby sister camps. And then uh, in part two of today, you're going to hear Steve with a special guest um, talking a little bit more about Camp and his experience there, and uh, you'll get it all. Before we get to it, one special announcement in honor of the 75th episode. There's going to be a brand new website launched. Uh, I told you guys many episodes ago about uh, some bandwidth problems we were going to run into with the current podcast feed. To alleviate the problem, uh, you're going to now be able to go to ojpodcast.com. That's ojpodcast.com, o, letter O, letter J, podcast.com. There you, it's just one page. It has every episode of the podcast on it. And also each of the podcasts are downloadable from there. So if there's any episode you'd like to have, have your own copy of, be able to listen to it at your own leisure, you can go to ojpodcast.com, download it right from there. You can download them all. You can download ones that you like. And uh, it will stay current with the current feed. So every time a new episode goes up on the regular feed, it'll also go up there for you to be able to find them all in one place as well as download them if you'd like. So that's the uh, a big 75th episode reveal, the new archive site, ojpodcast.com. Okay, here we go. Part two, Steve Katz and family on the Camp Ojibla History Podcast. Above you,
1: night breezes sing to whisper I love you, birds singing in the sycamore trees, dream a little dream
0: of me, yes. uh, and foremost, please say your name and your years at camp.
1: I'm Nikki Katz. I came here in diapers probably around 1985 or 86. Six, so one or two years old. Um, and I've missed a few years here and there, but I'm here and it's 2016 and there's only a few I haven't been here.
0: Very nice, very nice. So, and and how, what brought you to Camp Ojibwe?
1: My father is Steve Katz, who uh, came as a camper sometime in the 1950s. I'm not exactly sure the date. Um, and man, he loves camp. He's been coming ever since. As He's he brought does. the whole family up.
0: I wonder sometimes, so like growing up at home, was it, did you hear a lot about camp?
1: Um, you know, I actually did not hear a lot about camp growing up at home. I heard a lot about camp people. My dad always ah. said that the it was the people that really made the place. And camp people are still part of our lives on a, mm. I would say on a day-to-day basis. Um, my uncle Nuss was my father's camp counselor and I call him uncle and his daughter is my dad's goddaughter, and she's been dog-sitting for my parents this whole week of (laughs) post-camp.
0: What's uh, Uncle Nuss's real name?
1: Robert Nussbaum.
0: I see. Excellent. Just in case, you know, people like to get shout-outs when they can. Um, Hope you're listening. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I I just assume, because I know that um, he loves camp. There's no question. uh, Of the people that are the real uh, top 10 list of camp lovers, uh, he's definitely on it. But also, I've interviewed so many guys, and Steve's name comes up and so when you are a camp character to that many other people it's clear how much passion you have for the place
1: he has a lot of passion for it a lot um i think we did st- we we talked about camp stories a lot when my sister beryl and i started going to camp at camp birch Knoll, which mm. is up here in the north woods and that's where a lot of Ojibwa stories came out other than that, though, it was a lot of talk about the people and he keeps in touch with them year round. They're not just camp friends. Yeah. They're fr- life friends.
0: Yeah, absolutely. At any time, I'm just getting off the subway and, oh, Steve Katz on my phone. Hey,
1: what's up? What's going on? Let's talk about camp. <laughs> that sounds just like it's him. perfect.
0: So what do you remember about those early years? Uh, your pre-camp years when your interaction with with camp in general is just coming to post-camp. That's that right. Time, right.
1: Camp Ojobo was my first experience with any sleepaway camp at all. Like I said, I came when I was uh, one or two years old. And I, I have early memories. Um, they are distant, but I, I will never forget Denny hmm. as a little girl because Denny is both scary let's say terrifying, but he's also (laughs) gentle. So he's got both Um, at the talent show when you were so nervous and he would put your arm around you, but he would also bark a little bit. <laughs> at the same time, um, I wasn't sure what to think of Denny when I was a little girl. Sure. Uh, I always understood that he was a gentle creature, but, and at the snipe hunts, those are some of my early memories. Oh, snipe hunts. We're definitely going to
0: talk about some snipe hunts. We
1: can talk about them, but man, Denny does embody two very opposite characteristics at the same time. <laughs> and when you're little, those worlds collide and you're not sure whether to be terrified and run away or be perhaps terrified and run toward, uh, and that was fun. Nice.
0: So you mentioned the snipe hunt. Now, the, uh, the snipe hunt is one of those activities that is native to... Northern Wisconsin sleepaway camps, not not only, but it's one of the places where regionally it happens because this is where they have a big snipe population here in Wisconsin. Oh, huge! Yeah, and and I was just talking to your dad about it. Over the past few years, uh, there haven't been as many uh, licenses given out, so there's a little bit of an over- overpopulation problem, which I think we saw this year. I think the results were obvious this year that there's an overpopulation of snipe.
1: That's absolutely right. We uh, we really recruited hard this year to get some more kids out there to help with the control. Of the it's snipes tough. in these north woods here on Catfish Lake, yeah, they did you, a good job.
0: You can never start them too early. No, that's true. I mean, No, skills for life, really.
1: Absolutely, they've really. served me well.
0: So, as a as a young girl who went on snipe hunts to begin with, let's talk about that side of things first. What was that like? What do you remember?
1: Um, I would say snipe hunting is my most salient memory of camp as a little girl with. The only exception being the marshmallows in the lot in the mess hall, <laughs> which were delicious. Fair enough. <laughs> uh, snipe hunting as a little girl at Camp Jiva is one of the fondest memories I have. We would uh, we would wait until the sun set and it was a little dark and scary, um, and we were told that there were snipes in the forest. I'm not exactly sure all the details but i do know that when we went out there um and an adult would help me with my bag it would usually be like a pillowcase Mm. an adult would grab the snipe off the branch using my hands and the edge of the pillowcase and i would be trembling with fear uh it was very it was a very real moment the snipe i could feel the snipe in the weight of it moving around inside of my pillowcase it was really real of course the adult was jiggling a stuffed animal inside of that pillowcase but i thought it was alive i thought it was alive and when i was told to hold on tight all the way until we got back to the dad's lodge Man, my knuckles were white. <laughs> I really, I was a true believer. Mm. Um, my father always also dressed up, which was really fun. He would wear these one-piece suits. The, one of the ones that I remember the most was a one-piece red suit with polka dots all over it. He wore a feather I wouldn't want to say a feather hat, but that doesn't do it justice. It was like a feather crown, like a true Indian <laughs> prince. And he would dance around like a wild person doing some chant. Um, certainly not politically correct, but he, I know you've discussed that issue. <laughs> yes. But at absolutely, the time, it was just it was just fun and it was memorable. And anytime adults get really into something. It makes it that much more special for the kids. My dad was really into it. Totally.
0: And Steve Katz never wanted to shy away from a costume. That's right. That's right. He is, I mean, he is comfortable in a lot of clothing choices that not everyone can pull off.
1: Oh, he pulls him off.
0: Yeah, I mean, I've seen he, some bold colors, and he just owns it. He's like, "What? Do you, what's What's the problem?" Well,
1: with all of those bold colors were were really utilized in the snipe hunt. I think mm. it was part. I think it was part of the attraction. Maybe I should incorporate that Absolutely. into my repertoire.
0: And so, a couple of years ago at post camp, uh, you and Beryl, kind of came up and said, hey, listen, there's this thing we used to do, and we haven't really done it, and would it be cool if we just did it? And I'm like, absolutely, that would be amazing, Uh, especially you know, having experienced hands, if you will, on the snipe hunt, and uh, it has just grown by leaps and bounds. I think it was a huge success this year.
1: This year was a huge success. Last year was really fun. Last year was actually the first time we led it. We had such a good time. I think the kids really enjoyed it. I hope they believed the way that I believed. Um, and it's just a new perspective. You're really, you're walking in the shoes of your parents. That's really Mm -hmm. what you're doing. And you're trying to make it as fun for them as it was for you. And that's really special. Uh, we're, I don't think we're there yet. We're working out the details. I have to say Denny and my dad and whoever else was involved, I'm sure it was a group effort. Uh, but they had it down pat and we're not there yet (laughs) i know um in the dad's lodge when i was a little girl the reveal was a big deal Mm. Uh, there was some sort of a like i said a chant and a dance and a this and a that and then one two three hocus pocus you open your uh bag and all of a sudden the live snipe had turned into a stuffed animal for you to take home and that was done with a lot of ceremony Mm. um and then there was hot chocolate we haven't actually incorporated the hot chocolate i see We need to do that.
0: I see. And yet, now I have heard a legendary story about someone's wife who had come to post camp for the first time and got put on the snipe hunt, except that she, you know, wasn't really let in on the whole story. And so when the reveal happened, she screaming bolted from the counselor's lodge, ran outside, and was in tears, like at the point (laughs) by herself.
1: I love that story. (laughs) I have not heard that story. I love that story. I'm just
0: in my head, it's like, my mom in the eighties with her giant hair. <laughs> like that's the only person I can envision this happening to her running from the place I and screaming. Think
1: Mary Sue Katz would be doing that as well. if She was not, um, <laughs> uh, informed.
0: Yes. Yes. Smartened up as the kids say. <laughs> uh, so, so that's the big post camp, but, but now I've also seen a little videotape of you taking part in another huge post camp tradition. Of course, that is the talent show.
1: Oh yes. Well, that's, um, that's where my early memories of Denny come come into play. Uh, De- Denny was a very, very lovable and gentle and wonderful camp director and terrifying when you're a little girl. Um, <laughs> I was lucky to do the talent show always with my brother and sister, Sammy Katz and Beryl Katz, um, because... Together, we were strong. <laughs> I don't know if they feel the same way, but he was mm. he was scary when I was little. It was very intimidating. Um, and in a way, that was a feat. Um, it was just, int- it probably was the whole thing. It was um, that the only real time I had with Denny was also on stage in front of everyone.
0: Mm.
1: And now that, that's an interesting dynamic. Uh, but we did, we sang. The video you saw was probably The Boy and the Bear. We're the best of friends, and they played in the forest till the river ends, or something. Yes, Yes, Yes. we sang. (laughs) Uh, It was a makeshift stage in the mess hall. Mm. Um, And that was was really fun to do. Although, I don't know. Once we were older, we stopped doing that. Mm. Uh, We stopped participating in talent show. We became too cool for school. I see, of course. Until the one year... In recent history, when my brother, Sammy Katz, mm. who all right. would sleep all day, through our 20s at post camp, he was over it, I think, um, over parts of it. He did participate in some parts of camp and loved some parts of camp, but he was over a lot of it. And, you know, he's 22 years old or something, 25, and he'd sleep all day. And then one, one year, he just showed up with a saxophone. At Talent Show. Do you remember that, Chris? I
0: do, because it was one of my first ones, and I was like, oh, kid, kid, oh, here's a kid, here's a kid. Sammy, you, you wanted to- oh, sure, you can do something, yeah, just let's get the kids out of the way first. Okay, sure. And then all of a sudden, no, no,
1: I mean, he essentially came on stage, he must have been in his mid-20s, and played the sax, and did what we would now call is drop the mic. He dropped the mic, and he went back to his cabin, and I don't know, went to the... Probably went to the bonfire, which yeah, is where he spends obviously. most Clearly of his time bonfire, right. <laughs> at Camp Ojibwa, down at the bonfire on the lake, which mm. is not a bad place to be. No,
0: I mean if you're gonna be at one place for the entire time you're here, that's
1: pretty high on the list. That's right.
0: So that's your uh a lot of your post camp experience. But your post camp that's not your only camp experience with Camp Ojibwa. So as a Birch Knoll girl, of course, once a year, typically on the fourth of July in my during my time, which I think it would probably be our time your time as a camper and my time at camp as staff kind of crisscross. I think no, a little bit my now, time as a counselor
1: oh. and your time at camp would crisscross. I think would okay. overlap. I started in two thousand. I be uh, two thousand was my last year as a camper at Camp Birchnell. Ah,
0: there we go. My first
1: year as a counselor at Camp Birchnell was two thousand and two, and I was there till two thousand seven.
0: Okay. As right. a counselor, so certainly during all of that time, as far as I remember, and now I'm, mm-hmm. I'm going to assume before uh, the Fourth of July was really the purview of Birch Knoll coming to Camp Ojibwa, and for many of those years, sharing in the firework display. That's right. Um, were you? Did you also get some of the Ojibwa singers? Were you here for any of that? No. That may have died in the mid '80s. There was a group that was called from the kids of camp who actually liked to sing, and they would become the Ojibwe singers, and they would perform um, very patriotic tunes out on the I think y'all should bring that back. Well, funny you say that, because we did this year.
1: Oh, I love this.
0: They are now the Ojibwe Ambassadors, and the Ambassadors uh, came back this year uh, to—Denny came in on the pontoon dressed— fully in a sequined red, white, and blue America costume with a big gray wig and a giant flag and would read some of the lyrics from the scrolls. And then the kids would sing, you know, your grand old flag. And it was really a sight to behold.
1: That's amazing.
0: (laughs) So that used to happen. But in between those two things, basically, there were some fireworks, which got more and more sparse as the years went on because of Denny freaking out about the safety of catching the cabin on fire. And then, in fact, in 2001, a firework fell on cabin 13 and almost caught it on fire. And that was the last time we did them.
1: <laughs> I did not know that.
0: But the best part of the day, of course, being the personal girls coming over to Camp Ojibbo. So what was that like for you guys?
2: We well, well, let,
1: t-
0: Take us through a day at a girls camp when you have a social with the boys camp that night.
1: Well, a day at a girls camp, specifically at Camp Birchnell, because I can't speak to others. Although I have to imagine, um, the, the different personalities come out. Some of the girls, actually most of the girls are very concerned with the social, um, the shower house, for example, which has sat dormant all summer. <laughs> Nobody has used it except for the little ones when their counselors make them. Um, mm-hmm. uh, the shower house is all of a sudden full. Uh, Gary Byer, who was the director of Camp Arch and still is, um, Hey would be fussing about um, the electrical outlets because we would blow fuses like you would not believe those hair dryers I was saying, how many hair, dryers hair can straighteners. Wash? There's makeup. The cabins are a million degrees because it's summer, and people are flat ironing their hair. Everyone is uh, not everyone. Most people are getting gussied up. There's always a few personalities that come out who really just didn't care. I fell somewhere in the middle perhaps. <laughs> uh perhaps because I was so comfortable at Ojibwa. But I will say, now I started at Birch Knoll in 1993 and I didn't end until 2007 as a counselor. Sure. Um I was there for a long time and Ojibwa specifically was um a coveted a coveted camp if you if if you will. I see. Um Ojibwa was thought very highly of by camper and counselor alike. Um, We even had songs. We had songs about Ojibwa. Oh, wow. Yes, everyone was very excited. Everyone was excited for the 4th of July social because the Ojibwa boys were the hottest. Wow, okay. Yes, the Ojibwa boys were were hot stuff. We had... um, Somewhere over the lake there are boys... Although we never see them, we know that there are oy vey, Ojibwa boys, Ojibwa boys, Ojibwa boys, oy vey, Ojibwa boys. It goes on like that. There's more. There are more Ojibwa songs wow. sung by Camp Birch Noel girls. They were very hot. They were The Ojibwa boys were the cutest. They were the most athletic. Um, and... I think they were pined after all summer. Nice. Um, I
0: will say that the Ojibwa-Burchinall relationship, it, different than all the other, I mean, is right up the road, but we always had sort of a contentious relationship with them, and they just treat Menominee as their sort of boyfriends. So even though they're a mile away, we were never super close, and, and Chippewa's kind of far away, so it's great we see them, but, you know, it's just not the same. But, you know, having a standing date on the 4th of July, and then that does not even include what we will talk about in a minute and that's the island socials that would come later uh, they d- the Birchstone girls definitely got in their own sort of uh ballpark of very special women for the boys of Ojibwa
1: uh-huh yeah <laughs> um Well, the feeling was likewise. (laughs) That's
0: nice. Were you around? Did you partake in an island social? I was
1: in the island social of 2000, for sure, because that was the year.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I know what year that was. (laughs) Well, I believe there was some skinny dipping that had to be stopped. Oh, that's not even what I was going to say. Oh, okay. I was going to say that
1: that was the year that a friend of mine who shall not be named, who lived in Washington, D.C., hooked up with another camper. I should not... Name any of them
0: <laughs> that is correct we we don't name names here
1: but i but I will say I remember a bunch of those guys that were my age, um, and they were rowdy and they were fun, and uh some of them we had crushes on we probably had crushes on all of them, but it was sort of. That's one of the fun things about being in big groups of friends and being young. It was just a free-for-all. Right. And we did. I, I don't know if they do Island Socials anymore, but that was uh, in 2000. And we were very loosely supervised, if at all. <laughs> I think my friend Garrett Carr, who worked in the kitchen at Camper Chnoll, was our, quote, Chaperone. He hmm. is exactly 11 months older than I am. Um. <laughs>
0: Perfect. That works out exactly right.
1: <laughs> we all ended up naked in the lake. We had a great time. Yes. There were several other
0: island socials, and they sort of just became increasingly like, we'll go to the island. The two staff who decided they got stuck with this job will sit on the porch of the house and do crossword puzzles uh, and just make sure no one goes in the house. But the rest of the island's a free for all.
1: Oh, and we even went in the house.
0: Oh, uh, we. There was at least that line when, when in the later years.
1: Yeah, I think some of the some of the socials did get a little out of hand, but I will say, at least in my recollection, all of all of those events occurred when I was of a somewhat appropriate age. I don't remember anything, and maybe it was going on. It was just going on with the older kids. When I was right. young, I don't remember anything like that. Sure, I remember course. the usual social awkward dancing. Um, nothing weird. The uh, when we were in high school, maybe age 14, 15, 16, uh, that's when some lines were crossed, and I guess that's the time that's about the time lines yeah. should be or always are crossed.
0: Yes, <laughs> it's, I mean, that's sort of right, that's sort of right.
1: It's it's a rite of passage, and and I'm not endorsing um, sex, alcohol, drugs, whatever it is at camp, I am endorsing skinny dipping because <laughs> there is nothing better it's true. but uh you learn a lot
0: about yourself a, and
1: and everyone else that's right um, <laughs> <laughs> but it's it was all in good fun um i don't even remember a lot of squabbles um about about any of that it was just part of growing up i really do i i mean that um it was it was growing pains i think it's probably a headache and somewhat of a nightmare for the camp directors,
0: Sure, of course. but it's a rite
1: of passage and we all, we all survived it. And I'm still really good friends with a lot of those girls who were in my cabin in, in year 2000, who all have the same memory of jumping off. We jumped off the pontoon boat, which was hooked up at the Island. Um, and we still, we still have stories to tell.
0: (laughs) Very nice. Very nice. So now you are past your camp days you right. well you're going as a counselor days and uh so but you still come to Ojibwa every summer and also Birch Knoll is now doing like an alumni camp sort of a thing
1: right that's correct um we my family the Katz family stopped coming to postseason for several years actually um we were resumed in like 2006 I believe it was uh which was the year I graduated college um and then just four years ago, which would be 2012, uh, Camp Birch Knoll started doing an alumni weekend. Mm. Not for families, just for just for girls. Um, ages, now I think it's ages 21 and up. And we had a gal in her 50s this year. And it was nice. so fun. Very cool. Um, it cuts into my postseason time at Ojibwe because it's at the same time since all the campers kind of go home at the same time. But... I, I split my time, uh, and that's been really fun. S- uh, but postseason has really been interesting in my family. Um, uh, it has been, and when I say postseason, I mean, postseason since 2006, when we started coming again, mm. these past 10, 11 years, um, my family has grown a lot in every which way. Um, we have, um, I have two new sisters. That's, uh, Hillary Hyken Morrow um, and Tiffany Gardner Hassan. Um, they are additions to the family that really haven't been part of our core family my whole life until my 20s. Mm. They've joined at camp. And we've created our bond at camp. Um, and I wasn't raised with them, but they've become my sisters through camp, really, because this is the only place where we live together you know you can make as many weekend trips to visit someone but all it ends up being is going to lunch and going to dinner and getting on a plane so that's been where they have this place here at Ojibwa uh has been where we have really integrated them as part of our family and our family's grown in other ways because Hillary has gotten married uh Tiffany has gotten married um My sister actually was married in 2005 and now is divorcing. Um, And I am getting married next year in March. Beryl, Tiffany, and Hillary have all had children. Um, My brother Sammy brought his girlfriend Honey up for the past two years. She's Israeli, Um, so she adds, adds, uh, adds a lot to the cabin. Uh, she gets him out of his shell, I think, um, where my brother would sleep till lunch every day. He's up and paddle boarding, and I think Honey has a lot to do with that. Nice. Um, Scott Callick is a part of the Katz family. I don't know if your listeners know that. Uh, Scott Kallick has used to come up with uh, his wife and his two children. Uh, they divorced, and his children... Um, are a little older now. Never too old to come back to post-camp, but they're a little older now. And um, Scott was my dad's camper and is now part of the Katz family 100%. He stays in cabin, 13 with us. We love him. Somehow he stopped snoring this year. I don't know how that happened. Maybe you got a machine.
0: (laughs) It changes everything.
1: Um, So I hear. But it's... Our family has grown and developed, and I imagine will continue to grow and develop in Cabin 13. It's where we all spend the most time together. We live across the nation. Um, We're in Florida, New Orleans, Colorado, Washington, D.C. At one time, Sammy was in California at the same time when I was in Argentina. I lived in Argentina for several years. And do you know, Chris, I'm the only person you will ever meet has flown from Buenos Aires to Rhinelander, Wisconsin, and I've done it more than once.
0: <laughs> That's very impressive. Thank That's you. That's very impressive. That These days, that would take no less than seven planes. So
1: <laughs> It's three. It's oh, three I see. planes. I see. I see. <laughs> Miami, it, Miami, Minneapolis, Rhinelander.
0: Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. That's easier than it seemed.
1: <laughs> it's worth it. <laughs>
0: So, uh, the big question I always ask everyone in the end and, uh, how has Camp Ojibwa and your time here affected your life in the big picture?
1: I would say camp is, I think camp has affected my life in so many ways that it's hard to, to pinpoint it. Two things come to mind. One is that camp has really provided a place for my family to come together in a meaningful way um, and share experiences and form that bond as a family and get to know each other, uh, which I think is something that's really hard to do when you don't live in the same place. Mm-hmm. So that ha- having that consistent place that's f- steeped with tradition and history and allows you to continue making more memories is really, really important. But the other thing that is probably just as important or more is Camp Ojibwa has set the backdrop, has set the whole entire scene for my relationship with my father. Mm. I have gotten to know my father at and through Ojibwa. And here's why. Not only do I have memories of skiing on top of his skis and him shouting at me from the bo- when I'm on the boom uh, when I was really little, but I also have heard stories about my father from so many people when I'm here. And then I hear um, stories about my father and about camp from a million Ojibwa men across the nation whenever we cross paths. Um, and I, s- I have seen him become a grandfather and cha- change in, in little ways, but in important ways, as he directs his attention towards the next generation. And I've also, I just I've learned so much from the way he interacts with people at camp. Mm-hmm. And I have tried to emulate that to a certain degree he is so outgoing and he's warm and he really cares about this place and it makes such a difference when someone really cares about something I think that that's a that's really a take-home message it's if you watch someone who is great at certain things and he is great at camp (laughs) he's great at camp um you really want, you're watching someone at their best, and you're trying to learn, and you're and you're trying to um, soak it all in. Yeah.
0: All right. Well, I don't think we're gonna get any better than that. I think that just about says it all. So, thank you so much for taking the time.
1: Thank you, Chris. <laughs>
0: With Steve Katz, and now special guest in the studio. Please introduce yourself,
3: Mary Sue Katz.
0: And Mary Sue, uh, what brings you by,
3: Steve Katz?
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, Mary Sue, were you a uh, were you a camp girl?
3: I did go to camp since I was eight years old, all the way to high school.
0: Where was your camp?
3: Uh, The first part of my camp was at Camp Judea in Henderson, North Carolina. And that camp stopped at 8th grade. And then you went on to Camp Tell Yehuda in Bearville, New York. This was a very Zionist camp.
0: I see. I see. And how would you compare that camp experience to the Camp Ojibwe experience?
3: I thought all camps did prayers before and after meals sang hebrew songs did israeli dancing arts and craft more (laughs) hebrew lessons i had no idea camp had a lake and people swimming and playing games and it was nothing like i'd imagined i Mm. didn't it didn't look like a camp to me this looked like a uh, resort
0: wow well i suppose it sometimes it is to be fair well um, excellent. And so, how did you meet Steve?
3: How did I meet Steve? Uh, we were each other's second life at a 10th year high school reunion. Oh,
0: wow. Okay. Great. So, so. did you know he? We- each other at the reunion or no no you were, no
3: not at were, all were, no see. um we
2: came with different people i see yeah no
3: we, we were like i said we were part of uh second chapter i understand that.
0: okay and so you hit it off and uh
2: next yeah, thing you know we
3: uh, knew all the same people and chatted and we went out and the rest is history nice
2: and then one of the requirements is you have to be introduced to and like camp this camp This very camp. (laughs) So how did that introduction
0: go?
3: Well, Stephen and I were trying to remember the year. I think it might have been in 78 '78. that Stephen brought me here to postseason. And we stayed in the infirmary, twin beds. Okay. And I thought it was, like I said, this was an amazing place. It was beautiful. And I remember the first night when we went to bed, I kind of like, was like going, psst, psst, Steve, Steve, and he was like, huh. I said, there's a man in here in his boxer shorts. <laughs> Steven, you can give the rest of that one, because that was just like so Well, funny. for
2: all the old-timers, that was Charlie Holub. Charlie Holub was a member of an old Ojibwe family, the Holub family, and I really don't know why, but Charlie Holub used to do exactly that. He would walk around the hospital, in his undershorts, with his belly hanging out, and an unlit cigar in his mouth, singing "Goodnight Night Campers.
3: He was tucking <laughs> me in. That's all I remember. It was this strange man in his boxer shorts tucking me in.
0: What a, what a great tradition to bring back. I, I think maybe I could do that next year uh, for <laughs> post-camp. Just come around, boxers,
2: unlit cigar.
3: <laughs> it was definitely...
2: Charlie so. Holland was one of the old, real Ojibwe guys from the Monty Fellman era, Bob Lubin, those guys. They were they were a really tight group. In fact, when Mary Sue and I, I knew we were married at the time, uh, we have just been married a year or two, we went down to Augusta, Georgia, for a wedding. happened to be Barry Fellman's. Mm. And all of the old time, it looked like an Ojibwe gathering. And the funniest thing I remember about it is after the... I don't remember, It's was the wedding of the rehearsal dinner, the bus that they had to take everybody to the synagogue and, had, and, the, par- and the wedding party, came back to the hotel where we're all staying, and Monty Feldman sort of directs this like a chorus director, and as Al steps off the boat, everybody says, or he's, Al said, all right, good night, boys, and everybody at all together said good night, Al. And everybody <laughs> laughed right after that.
3: That was at more than that wedding because we went to the Begin wedding. We went to so many weddings, and um, but the ones that Al was uh, also a guest, and he would leave like before the dancing and before all whatever he have his dinner, and everybody would do. He would do the good night, boys, and everybody, you know, wedding, no wedding, didn't matter. They all stopped and they did this chant. When Steve and I got married, we had at least 40 of the Ojibwe, quote, boys at our wedding.
0: Very nice. And, and it wasn't in
2: Chicago. <laughs> it was in <laughs> New Orleans. Everybody flew down.
0: Very nice. Yes.
3: So that was the other, um, I guess, you know, stipula- you know, this was part of the packaging. Yeah.
0: So we're sort of picking up where you and I left off the other day, sort of chronologically. So Mary Sue comes into your life, and now you're in the later Schwartz years. At that point, what's your interaction with camp on a year-to-year basis?
2: Uh, at that point, on a year-to-year basis, it's postseason. Um, I had pref- made a, a conscious decision that this is where I would go to camp because I would always rather be a doer than an observer. And there were always groups of old campers that would come up. Uh, and they would come up regularly and... and they were they were part of the landmarks of camp. And that that group of old-timers has now transcended into my contemporary, what were my contemporaries. Bernie Kerman, George Kerman, Mike Bagan, uh, Dizzy Netskin, of course, until he died. Um, they were a little bit older, but now they're the old-timers. Mm. But I preferred, in addition, it wasn't an easy trip for me because I've never been from Chicago. Right. So we came up for postseason— um, a couple times uh before we had kids and then we had kids, I guess we brought Beryl up at oh, how old? Yeah. One or two?
3: Um, Beryl was a couple years. The kids were here in um the cribs, strollers, the whole bit. The biggest thing that I liked about um the postseason campus, because I'm not from Chicago, that's really where I got to meet all the wives. Mm. Um, you know, Sherry Feldman, uh, Lori Bagan, It was uh Phyllis Bagan, uh, Mary Lou Roffey back then used to come, um, Jan Kaufman. I mean, this was my whole, you know, this was my girl, these were my group sure, of girlfriends. Absolutely. I mean, our husbands forgot we existed. <laughs> and They came to camp and they immediately reverted back to being um, little guys running around camp. We'd see them at mealtime. And that was it. But, I mean, in the morning, (laughs) they were off playing and running and doing and in the water, and we really didn't see anybody. And I I remember I got... um, Sherry helped me get from the kitchen staff... um, some girls. Some some of the girls because mm. then it was the town girls that worked in the kitchen. Because remember, we had Otto back then, right, and we course. had Catherine and
2: Katie. So,
3: Kate. I mean, so we had that whole crew. It was a whole different as far as with childcare, because I was coming up with three children, and um, I guess at that point. Um, Barrel was three, four. I mean, three kids in that age range. Yeah. So and it was just with the waterfront and everything else, and uh, so anyway, so they were very helpful with the uh, care. And, and and back then too, all of us had children around the same age, so we helped each other out.
0: Mm.
3: One year we brought my parents, um, which was yeah. really funny. My parents are um, are uh, well, they're deceased now, but they are they were from Vienna, Austria. Mm. And they have never been to a <laughs> not this kind of camp anyway. Right. And um, so it was really, um, they stayed in the infirmary, and we had the cabin. And it was, um, I thought my parents were going to help me, and I never saw them. They were, took after Steve. They, in the morning, they had their <laughs> breakfast, and they were walking, and they were gone all day. There you go. Until my mother saw the bear.
2: Oh. That was the year the bear showed up at the trash below the mess hall. Yeah, uh, and that was it.
3: My mother was like, her camping days were over.
2: <laughs> that's fair. As Stephen was saying,
3: how, what did my mother say?
2: <laughs> Oy ve a bear. And that was the latest we had. And the last time she saw it, she stayed close to the cabins. And yeah. like, like Mary Sue said, she'd never seen anything like this. And she saw a bear and didn't want to see any more. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> but that, that, at that point, our kids were young. Uh, postseason, actually postseason, and I've, this has been a total 180, has changed. Postseason was full, but camp wasn't. Hmm. Camp was undergoing some real serious problematic issues, and the issues were that the Schwartzes were still running it. Mickey had a very success, still does, had a very successful insurance business. Hmm. Um, he was a little bit torn as to which way he wanted to go, but I, I think that he was—he had set up this insurance business. This is what he wanted to do. Um, he, again, did it well and did it successfully, but he really had no desire to run camp. Um, Elliot and I, and for years and years on our trips to New York, had talked about that, and we—I had heard from a couple people— older than Mickey, that Mickey had no intention of running Ojibwe and that they would be selling the camp when the time came. Now, we never knew when the time was going to come. Sure, of course. But it came from a confluence of reasons. A, Al was in his early 80s. Um, he was in great shape for a man in his early 80s, but he wasn't in great shape for a camp director. In addition to that, he'd gotten... Well behind the times, for example, some of the the meals we had up here um, were way behind the times. There were we had meatloaf, we had tongue, we had <laughs> stroganoff, um, and whether you like those or not, eighty percent of them were going back to the kitchen. There were things like that. There were there were nineteen fifty rules. Being adhered to, and there were 1950 activities. Hmm. So they de- they decided to sell camp, and we were positioning ourselves. We were figuring the camp would sell for just under a million dollars, which is about the case, and in those days that was pretty substantial.
0: Sure.
2: Um, I was very interested with Elliot and I in in, in putting together a group mainly ourselves, that would buy camp. At the same time, originally unbeknownst to us, Scott Levenfeld uh, put together a similar play to Buy Camp. Uh, Scott Levenfeld was a counselor and camper here for many years, and uh, he was not my favorite, nor was he Elliots. Nor was he a lot of people's favorite. Uh, Scott just rubbed us the wrong way. We never got along with him. And the last thing we wanted to see was Scott Levin fell by camp. Mm. Uh, a, we didn't think he would do a good job, and B, it would alienate us. Um, the X factor in there uh, was Danny. So Elliot and I talked, and we decided the only way that this would work would be, was to get Denny on our side. I was, I had a business that I was running, but I was on the, I spent probably most of that time on the phone. I still remember the phone number of the pay phone. We had a payphone in the old kitchen and Ellie and I and, and Denny would talk on regularly. But Denny was the key. Denny was the program director and we knew he would be part of the continuation that Ojibwa needed, and we needed it to be a continuation. We didn't want a whole another group coming in here. It had to be Ojibwa people. Um, so as, as that went along, we decided that we needed to come up here and take a good, strong look. If I were going to be a, a major investor, I mean, it was going to be two major investors at that point, Elliot and myself. Right. And Denny was gonna be, in, you know, a uh, sweat equity investor. He was gonna mm-hmm. own part of it, but he was he was just gonna work it. Right. We were gonna spend mo- been, most yeah. of the summers up here, and I needed to run that by Mary Sue. <laughs> <laughs> and the yes. night, the, the I r- thought I was
3: uh, the <laughs> Well, you,
2: you were the expat, but but I will say that P- uh, Pearl and Al and Mickey were very very receptive. To our visit. Now they needed a buyer for their camp. That may have been one reason. Sure. We were aligned with Denny, which made Al happy because Al loved Denny Rosen and vice versa. Mm. And I think that it was very pleasing to him that Denny would continue the camp. But I'll let Mary Sue t- tell you about her v- version of the, the visit when we came up. We came up, it was toward the end of the season, I believe.
3: It was during the season. That's all I remember. I don't remember what part of the season. Mm. But I just remember when Stephen said, um, Mary Sue, I'm thinking about buying a, can- you know, buying Ojibwa. And I looked at him like, what? And he said, yeah, yeah. And I know how much he loves it. And I said, and he was telling me like, oh, yeah, he was going to go help with the recruit and this, that, and the other. And he'd be leaving town, I don't know, May, coming back and you know. Mm, maybe August, you know, end of August, September, sure. and I'm going like, mm, you know, you have children, you know, <laughs> you know, we live in New Orleans. This is not like, you know, so it was just like I was very, very hesitant, and um, but I told him I'd come up with them, and the first thing I remember was. Um, Pearl, you know, walking me around. And everything was very specific about how camp ran and how you specifically did things. And I was just shaking my head, going, "Mm, that's nice. And then mealtime, I remember they let me know that it was a big deal that I didn't have to eat in the kitchen, that they were going to allow me to eat in the mess hall. And I was going... And I remember from Stephen's mother when she came to visit how... She had to eat in the kitchen hmm. because women, other than Pearl and, I guess, Sandy and whatever, were allowed. Everybody else had to eat in the kitchen. Right. And so it was like, okay. But everything, and this is like, and this is what you can do during the summer while you're here. Because I keep thinking, okay, 150 boys, me. And they were saying <laughs> that, um, well, maybe I could keep the inventory for the mess hall, the, um, the food. Okay. Or I could do something in the office. And I'm thinking, okay. Maybe
0: do some ironing or some laundry. I mean, everything <laughs>
3: they were telling me about, that's all I remember just shaking my head, like, oh, really? <laughs> and it was um, telling, you know, when... Everybody was wonderful, and everybody showed me. And I remember, like, the boys did their activity in these, what are those chairs called?
2: White chairs. They, they used to be white, yeah. but the white chairs. Well,
3: we were sitting, I am sitting next to Pearl, and she's knitting, and I'm going, okay, I don't knit. I mean, I was, all I kept thinking was everything she was doing was nothing I really did.
0: Right.
3: And um, so anyway, so when Steve was telling me about it and more about it, I said, you know, camp, I love camp. I think it's great. But I didn't know that I wanted that level of involvement, being here the entire summer. So you can go back from that, because that's how I left it with him. It's like I had no problem with him being involved in buying camp, but I didn't want us to be at that level of camp.
0: Right.
2: Well, what was really transpired then that's just so key to Ojibwe and what happened was a meeting that took place in the Dad's Lodge, now Cabin 14, and I'm trying to remember everybody there. You and I were there. This um, is
0: while you're visiting. This
2: is while we were visiting. So presumably, this is
0: postseason '85. Postseason '85. Right? They they basically decided. was it
2: postseason or end a season. I. Yeah. Uh, were there? Campers? I think it might have. Over- yes, there were campers okay. when we first got. Must have been the overlap at the end of the year because okay. that's when we timed it. When and, one- and those guys
0: basically decided they wanted to sell and put it all in motion all within one season. There wasn't a prolonged
2: camp was in a bad place. Right. It's it, really the only time that I can think of in the history of Ojibwa that I could say camp was in a bad place. Right. We and had a hundred and ten
3: beginning to that point. This this went over several months, the whole conversation and whatever. Right. But and I don't remember it being one I don't re- i i remember leaving camp and then maybe when we came back for postseason you continued this. I don't remember this us overla- le- overlapping.
2: Uh, it might have been we might have come up and then came back. but I-, I remember everything came to a head in that one meeting. You remember the meeting in the uh, in a dad's lodge. You're right because we brought up Bobby Kaufman. I'm not sure what made me want to have Bobby as our attorney, but, he, you know, Bobby is about as eligible as you can get. Sure. He was a young attorney at that time. Uh, he had just started with his firm, um, Fishling Khan. I, I guess that's still where he is He's many years later. And he was going to represent us, meaning Elliot and I, in the meeting. Then he came with Sandy. Um I think that was it. I don't even think the Schwartzes were there. I think it was the five of us in that room at the Dads lodge. And I brought a bunch of ideas and another idea and and, and some thoughts and some suggestions um many of which Denny still lives with today. And what really happened in that meeting and over those couple days De- there was going to be a tremendous duplication of roles at camp. Not Elliot. Elliot was very comfortable and and knew his role at camp. Elliot's role at camp then would be basically what it is what it became for the next 30 years. It's a little bit toned down right now, but in a lot of ways it's still Elliot's position at camp and what he does. He always wanted to run Collegiate Week and nobody's really taken that away from him. Right. He lives for Collegiate Week. Um, he wanted to be involved in the show and he was. Um, but Danny and I had a lot of overlap. We had overlap in activities, we had overlap in suggestions, and a lot of suggestions were the same. In fact, the one suggestion that I was pretty adamant about, and I'm glad he he stuck with it, because he really didn't want to was the four weeks. We were losing a lot of kids. Um, it's not as prevalent now as it was then, but four-week sessions were very, very popular. Mm. We were losing kids to Menominee. There wasn't a horseshoe. And, and to some other camps up here that did the four, uh, four-week four sessions. They could go to their activities other than camp. They could go on family trips other than camp. We had to have a four-week uh,
3: That was a big, big debate and discussion on that one.
2: It was. And Bobby Kaufman made a great comment that I've never forgotten, and he's absolutely right, but it still needed to be done. Bobby looked at us, Denny and I, and he said, I think you're right, and I guess you have to do it. But if we had had four-week sessions, you wouldn't have called me to be the attorney and the relationships wouldn't be, ha- wouldn't be as thick as they are today. And everybody, there was silence for a minute. It was a very perceptive comment that Kaufman made. And while we all agreed with him, we knew we had to go forward with that. Right. And the suggestions that I put in, the ones that Denny kept, we kept the camp open to investors uh, to come up in the spring. And Bob Boehm, Bob and Carol Bohm, who's now deceased, but uh, Bob and Carol came up every fall. And then he said to me, he says, well, I guess you bought Bohm home in Eagle River. i if you forget him telling me, I guess you bought Bowman in Eagle River. He's always up here. <laughs> um, and George Sachs started coming up then. And, and, and that was really a good thing. People started using CAMP. CAMP became more friendly to its investors, uh, more... Um, more of a uh, six- or eight-month facility that we could actually use and function as opposed to, like I mentioned earlier, the Schwartz's closed it up uh, and boarded it up and left Katie and her dog up here all winter. Does
3: anybody still do the winter sports like you all used to do? You They used to come up here in the winter and do snowmobiling because one of the buildings was uh, winterized that you all went to.
2: I don't know the answer to that. No, that stuff has
0: sort of fallen off. Okay, because
3: that was a real big deal that these guys would be, you know, do do that. I mean, that was a trip Stephen always would take in the winter. Yeah,
0: I know Joel brings a group up every year and has for as long as... Joel Mm-hmm. But um, outside of that, I don't think there's any sort of uh, collective groups that do it anymore. Um, well, it was
2: fun, and it worked great until Elliot ran into a snowmobile, into a tree with his snowmobile and broke his leg. <laughs> about <laughs> the most athletic injury Elliot's ever had. But did you? Did you, did you, did you I,
0: well, the the story of Elliot, the snowmobile and his lost testicle, are very famous. That is maybe the most famous camp story there is.
2: Uh, I didn't realize that's where he lost it. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> but he did. Well, maybe we should get a sniper together and go see if we find it. But uh, but anyway, you know, Elliot ran that snowmobile right in a tree and had a hip cast on. But anyway. Um, I suggested that we open the camp up because we had the facility sitting here sure. and it was enticement. The other enticement was we would have the, the designated hitter rule had just come into baseball mm. maybe two, three years before. So I suggested we have a designated camper rule. Um, we had a couple single people, particularly Mike Began, that we knew would invest in camp, but they didn't have children. So we figured any investor that we were going to get would have a child we would give a 10% discount to as another enticement. Sure. But then it wasn't fair to anybody who was single, so we made it a designated camper rule if you had a nephew or whatever. We had that. Um, the activities up uh, needed to be upgraded too. Uh, there were a couple things that had really gotten old. We needed a fitness program, which is, which really hasn't taken off like I thought it would. We needed to emphasize water skiing and sailing as opposed to rowboating and, you know, canoeing. Um, and obviously, that really is where the where the waterfront is today. It's a water ski, a uh, little bit kayaking. 2 wings
0: uh, shark. The, the yeah, stuff. it's
2: what I call the left side of the waterfront, whereas in the past, it was the right side of the waterfront where the rowboats and the canoes and... Those sure. things are kept. Sense, it it yeah. really moved over, and and those were the activities that the Schwartzes really didn't get. Hmm. Um, we again the fitness programs, and Danny has taken that to a whole new level. Um, the tra- are we still doing the trampoline basketball? Absolutely. Trampoline basketball. The rifery went out, which he should have gone out a long time ago. Uh, uh, and and. I can't say enough about how Denny has innovated the program and really used the space. Al prided himself in having wooded acreage. Denny, Maybe there's a happy medium somewhere. Denny doesn't have any consideration for that. If there's a facility that he thinks will help the program at camp, and remember, that's where Denny came from. Denny was a program director. Right. He's still a program director at heart. He sees what the program needs, and he addresses it. Uh, I don't know if he's still that involved in the program, because he's got two, real three, including you. He's got a, three really good program directors at camp. Yep. Joel's a good program director. Stu's good. And, and from the other side of the activities, I, you do a hell of a job. So... He's got that. But he saw the program. He saw the floor hockey. He saw basketball overtaking 16-inch softball. we I mean, I don't even know where the golf net is anymore. Golf net was in the middle of the activities. Um, they're we, still
0: around, but, uh,
2: we had, but I,
0: I don't think you can yeah. understate at all. The basketball change. That is a huge deal. And it happened right at that time. We're talking about right in that transition, Michael Jordan, it was Michael everything. Jordan as much as Denny Rosen. Absolutely. And especially with the Chicago kids that changed everything. And us being able to have these great basketball facilities, build the new courts over the next few years and really put a focus on that program. That was a big deal for us. And that was a big attention getter for kids. We were trying to recruit.
2: Yes, and you can see it today. In fact, this doesn't involve the changeover in camp, which which I'll get back to in a second, but I saw this year the new scoreboards. Mm. That is a really, really nice and clever touch and makes these kids feel like they're in the middle of the United Center.
0: Absolutely, absolutely.
2: So things like that. The program has matured into a 21st century program, and and, and that was was Denny Rosen, and that's what made it happen. But then, going back to that, when Denny and I really had a realization that this wasn't going to work with the two of us trying to run the show, he said, well, I get the money. Um, I've had enough people call me. Why don't I just make the offer to Al? I said, I think you should. I'm out. We're done. Uh, eventually, he called me. He put the money together. He really did. I, and, you know, he took my list and his list. And, you know, the last thing I wanted to see was Ojibwa right. dissipate. Right. Um, so he calls me maybe, oh, I don't know, Right before Christmas, if I remember correctly, and said, We really want you to come as an investor. I've got all the money. I don't need your money, but I want you to be with us. Now this day I never knew if Kaufman made him do it, or Elliot made him do it, or Sandy made him do it. But he called me and he asked me to come on to the team, so to speak. Yeah. And I did, because I didn't want to be left out. I wanted to be part of it. And uh it's usually not my style, but in this case, if I couldn't have the whole thing, I was going to take a piece. Sure. That makes sense.
0: And to be clear, um, it doesn't seem to me that it wasn't a hard-feeling situation. It was just— It was
2: for short-term.
0: Yeah, okay. Okay. That's what I guess that was the question. You got in the same room, and it was suddenly, this isn't going to work like this. Yeah,
2: we both knew it wasn't going to work. It just wasn't—it's like going back to basketball— then not work too well if you have two balls. Right. It, it just doesn't. <laughs> right. It just doesn't. Right. And,
0: uh, and, it, and But, I mean, that
2: really says something to you
0: and to your feelings about this place, that in that moment you were able to say, okay, if I'm going to be the one that steps back, whatever's for the good of the camp, let's do it that way.
2: Yeah, well, it was clearly. Denny was the one that the option was. He raised the money, which originally he didn't think he could do. Um, he raised the money. He put the whole deal together. Um, and I will say I think you know Elliot was the one was the continuing factor no matter who was in charge right. and Elliot helped a lot there too and always has from a financial standpoint um, so Denny took it and he did take the full week program he did take the uh, um, investors option to come visit he did take the uh, camper discount um, and he did take Bobby Kaufman which really surprised me because Bobby came up here, represented us, and uh, Denny was basically, it was very strange. Bobby was representing Elliot and I. Um, Denny was unrepresented. Scott Levenfeld was somewhere off in the picture. And Bobby Kaufman uh, ended up representing Denny and does to this day and has been the Ojibwe attorney for 30-some years. So Bobby Kaufman was the one that, that, that came out probably better than anybody yeah. except Denny. <laughs> and then Denny took those first couple of years, and he turned camp around. I think it probably was one of those situations where it took him a shorter time than we thought and a longer time than he thought.
0: I think that's probably pretty well put. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean— I, we were you know it was touch and go there's no question that it was not a sure thing early on but it became a sure thing much sooner i think than anybody except for him expected
2: mm-hmm. and as an investment when we i i had come into town and done some homework over at the uh um uh, the records building over in eagle river um we had a very disproportionate amount of waterfront property, hmm. so the back door in this whole situation was if we ever had to. There really wasn't a lot of risk from a business standpoint. Um, we've had some offers since then on this property. This is a great piece of development property, hmm. and it's uh, it was very strange. That's another little camp history story. Um, we have over four thousand feet of waterfront property. The reason we have a, that that over four thousand feet of waterfront property is because when Al came to buy the property, he his intent. This is I remember hearing this from him, and I hear the rest of story from Otto. His intent was to buy hundred acres. And I think on his original brochures, he advertised this as 100 acres. But then I found out that it wasn't 100 acres. It was 63, and that was a bad news. Mm. Actually, it was less than that because we eventually bought the property across, across the road from the far field. Right. So originally, Al had close to 58, 60 acres, something like that. Um, the 4,000 waterfront feet were what he could afford uh, from his backers. This is not Denny's, Al's. Because the land on the waterfront was cheaper than the land that wasn't on the waterfront.
0: Mm.
2: Now, that has gone not only full circle, but it <laughs> it's not even close. Right. Acreage, for example, a waterfront property here goes for, I mean, you do the math, for about $150 a front foot. Mm. Acreage up here goes for about 20,000 an acre, which is nothing. Right. Uh, but in those days, the main product, the main... Uh, crop up here was timber. And timber grows better away from the sand. Mm. So Al had to buy that lousy sandy beachfront property. (laughs) So that was the back door in the whole investment. There was always money that could be gotten out if we ever had to develop it. And luckily, we haven't had to develop it. And we've been able to turn up our nose in any offers we've had. And I think that one result of that meeting and, and the way Denny proceeded from there was that as a collective group of people whose desires are nothing more than a preservation of Camp Ojibwa, it runs as a better camp. Hmm. Nobody's trying to make a living here except Denny. Nobody cares if we have a losing year. It's not like we're going to starve. Right. We're still going to have the cash call. We'll cash call. Nobody's in this for the money. We're all in it for the history.
0: Yeah. Well, you talk, you know, what you just talked about, though, that speaks to something. Talking about Denny's legacy a little bit, that there's a certain kind of guy who could have stepped in and been the director of camp, but also accepted 27 investors and a board that were going to be opinionated. That knew that they weren't they weren't investing to make money, but they were damn sure going to have opinions, and to be the guy that could take that, get his ego out of the way, do the right thing for camp, but also honor those opinions when they were right, do the right thing when they weren't, have a good reason why they weren't the right thing, and and he let that filter down into the way he ran camp. You talked about the sort of uh, extra the other staff as he he would call his head or It really I call is, it the mezzanine right. Right. It right. really is like a president's cabinet. And he, specifically in the past 10, 15 years, has really run camp that way. He put people around him whose opinions he valued. And most importantly, people that he knew loved camp. And it didn't matter if he personally got along with them even sometimes. Because there are certainly guys who I've seen him have conversations about camp with that... Personally, eh. but he knew they loved camp and their interest when it came to those passion arguments were about camp first. And so he surrounded himself with those people because he could be the guy that could get his ego out of the way, take those opinions in, synthesize out what's best for camp and do the right thing. And I think that that running camp that way has bled down all the way through now. I mean, we all think we it helps all of us who are here think better about how to work together how to let other opinions sink in when it needs to be done, and what's for the good of camp.
2: The difference being that I can't tell you what's going to happen to Ojibwa 10 years down the road, but I can tell you what's going to happen to Ojibwa in one and probably in two years, and it's going to be a pretty smooth move forward. In 1985... I couldn't have told you that. I wasn't worried about the 10 years that I'm worried about today. I was worried about next year. Yeah. And that's a very nice comfort level.
0: Yeah, for sure. For sure.
2: All right. So then we get
0: through the transition. Everything shakes out. Do you guys, do you skip a year? Do you miss a year
2: or does it
3: no, we no, came, we, came. Camp came. no on. we came. We've been coming
2: to postseason for a long time. We skipped we a couple it. years right after we moved to Colorado. We
3: went initially. We yeah. had moved to Colorado in eighty nine. Full time. And I remember we came to camp in eighty nine. And then even ninety, because I remember I didn't know what was where. We would
2: bring the girls from Birch Knoll over here after our kids went to camp. Oh, there. of course.
3: So right. anyway, so we were here, but it was like it was later that we all of a sudden it was having a, New Orleans, Colorado here. It, it got to be a little bit much. Mm. So that we took a few years off.
2: And I would come up. I'd come up with Kenny Began and usually. You came usually, up with
3: Nikki sometimes when you got. I to came
2: up with Nikki once
3: without even me. But
2: the years that I didn't bring any of the kids over here, which I, I'd sometimes I'd come with Nikki. I think one time I came with Beryl and Nikki. Um, then I came with Kenny Bagan, and we'd just hang out up here over Labor Day. But I don't think there's been a year that I haven't put my foot on these grounds. Mm. Very nice for. 50, no, 60, 59 years. No, Very nice. I skipped two. So make it <laughs> 57. 57, Very nice. yeah, 57. We've
3: been as postseason, I mean, Steve and I started off in the infirmary. We've been in cabins, different, ca- different cabins. We've been in the back by the counselor's lodge. Mm-hmm. We've been. Ro- the little bitty rooms. that we have that desk in there. That was one of our rooms. Oh. Yeah, yeah. That's. Nuts. So yeah, we used to be in where um, uh, the Schwartzes lived.
2: Oh, Mickey and we. Was, I don't know what uh, it's was, called. It. Is that Joel and Rachel's? Yes.
3: That we were there for years. That was our. That was our place. You know, and that's everybody gets so possessive of. Oh, there. totally. Are you kidding that me? was ours. And then we skipped a year or whatever two, and somebody else you lose it it's ours and was like eh.
2: <laughs> so danny said to me one year he says what if i gave you 13. mary sue was a little hesitant because we had had 12 the year before that it was like a camper going from 12 to 13. Sure. <laughs> so we went and looked at 13 and we said you know this this is, we'll take the big cabin and we uh, so I went back to Danny and I said, okay, I'll take 13, because I don't know why he was having trouble selling 13. No,
3: because Greenbergs weren't coming back. What's um the family? It was Greenberg.
2: Greenberger? Oh, is that who it was? Greenberger. Yeah, that's, they were in oh. there, and they weren't
3: coming back the next—they wanted our cabin the next year. That's what it was. They were in 13, and they wanted 12. So Danny approached us about switching— and it was like, what's wrong with that cabin that they don't want it? <laughs> and so anyway, so we looked and we decided we would do it. But then after that, it was like, okay, that's our cabin. No, now.
2: I mean, I said to him, I said, if I switch, can can we have it indefinitely? And that was the deal. That and the I don't deal. even know how many years we've been in thirteen.
3: We've been in thirteen at least ten years. At least now. ten. So at certainly, least 10 all the years, years I've been at. Boston. At least ten years we've been in thirteen. Yeah. So and I mean. It's all the little cubbies. In it's there. more than that, Mary Sue. I said at least. I yeah, didn't say, might you know. be fifteen. But it was. Um, I think it was because it was well. Below now
2: I have room. not been in thirteen as long as Elliot.
0: Wow.
3: <laughs> <laughs> but we're filling it up.
2: I was. Uh, keep doing it. Listen. Keep yeah. bringing them. I There's mean, plenty we, of room. You
3: know, we had thirteen of us this this time.
2: And all our grandchildren are boys. That's the
0: Ojibwe way, right?
3: right.
0: <laughs> okay, that's another one in the books, my friends. Episode 75, jam Pack two full hours. Steve Katz and family. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed recording with these guys. We had a lot of fun and uh a lot of funny stories steve katz is a real character as most of you know and he was happy to share some of his uh his favorite tales with us which was really cool um uh that is it uh, at the top of the show i told you and i'll remind you again ojpodcast.com the new archive site for the podcast you'll be able to go there download any episode you'd like uh right to your computer and uh it's only podcast and it's only one page so you can just scroll down until you find the one you want so it's a little easier to uh sort through and uh, and find what you like if you want to get in touch with the podcast as always you know how drop me an email christopher at campojibbehistory.org or swing by the website and check out some of the new stuff we put up to celebrate the 75th episode i think you'll dig some of that that is it it's a it's a beautiful day sort of so you know where i'm going